Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Following the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from the Great White North and his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard. And welcome once again to Strange Planet. And we are going to delve into one of my favorite topics, and that is climate change and sustainable development. Steve Gorham is executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America and author of three books on energy, climate change, and sustainable development. And with over 100,000 copies in print, his latest book is Outside the Green Box, Rethinking Sustainable Development. Steve, welcome. How are you? Richard, I'm doing great. Great to join you. I've been talking about climate change for probably close to 20 years. I go back to, I was interviewing people on the Oregon petition. Do you remember the Oregon petition back in the mid-2000s? I have a daily radio program, and I dedicate one segment every week with Tony Heller. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Tony Heller, and we talk about these things as well. Sounds familiar. I can't place him right now, but go ahead. He has a a website called uh, realclimatescience.com. Okay. I know we'll get into COP27, but I want to jump right just to last week and they had the WEF conference and we had Al Gore talking about, you know, how we have to act immediately and we have to act quicker because the, he actually said the oceans are boiling. Yes. The level of hyperbole now has reached a whole new height. John Kerry saying that 50% of our species are extinct, which is completely false. Do you get the sense that they are starting to panic? Well, the alarms keep getting bigger and bigger, don't they, about everything? Um, you know, it is remarkable. Uh, this is, uh, I consider that this, this the biggest superstition in modern history, the idea that our very small emissions relative to what nature does of carbon dioxide is causing dangerous temperature rise. Uh, Mr. Gore said the oceans are boiling, but we've had one degree rise in 140 years. Uh, since 1880. And, um, you know, I have, uh, sometimes I have, uh, excuse me, I'm getting a phone call I got to get rid of. (laughs) Um, I had some uh, students from uh, University of Southern California call me up and say, uh, and and uh, interview me. And then I started asking them questions, of course. I said, how much do you think world temperatures have risen in the last century? And one said five degrees, one said 10 degrees. People really have no concept that in 140 years, we've had a temperature rise that we experience every morning from 9 to 10 a.m. So it's very, very small. The other thing is that we've had warmer temperatures in the past. Um, We've had uh, uh, periods that are multiple centuries long um, and up to 500 years when it has been warmer than it is today. And so it's it's very difficult to to, uh, build a case that human emissions are causing dangerous warming and that natural factors don't dominate 
nevertheless, <laughs> the world has by and large accepted this, and we've uh, it's spending over $500 billion a year on wind and solar and renewables uh, trying to uh, control global temperatures. Really an amazing uh, and superstitious situation. Right, as you say, you know, the, yeah, trillions of dollars, and it's all about, as you point out, like one degree. They want to keep, what is this argument about it's all about one degree? Well, that is that is the thing. It's very very small, one degree, and these are these are uh, metrics from um, the Climate Research Unit in England, uh, NOAA, and NASA. They all say about the same thing. Uh, they go back to about 1880 was when we had uh, thermometers. By the way, they say uh, when they say this is uh, the warmest in history, they're always talking about thermometer history, which is back to 1880. But we had warmer times before and uh, than we have now. Um, but, but, uh, you know, there's, there's never any, any real solid data for this, but the alarms are there and the, and the scare tactics are there. So they want to, they want to prevent, uh, or, or manage the temperature rise to within, was it one and a half degrees? Yes. Uh, uh, COP 27, which occurred in December, the, the 27th conference of the parties, and the United Nations, they have these uh, annual meetings, and that is their goal, that we should have no more than a one and a half degrees Celsius of temperature rise. Uh, but it's all based on the mistaken idea that we can control it, which is the height of human arrogance and uh, really not supported by, uh, by the evidence, at least in my opinion. Right, this idea that CO2 is driving uh, temperatures. Right. Uh, that it's somehow it's like a thermostat is co2 do we even know whether co2 is caused by a temperature rise is causing temperatures to rise whether it's a lagging indicator do we have any idea well that's another issue uh uh yeah let me talk about that first then maybe we can get into the greenhouse effect a little bit but yeah there has um uh, matter of fact uh, mr gore used to do presentations and he would show a chart which uh, showed that CO2 was way up and temperature was way up. The thing is, if you actually go back and look at data over the last uh, several ice ages that geologists look at, uh, we've had four ice ages about 100,000 years long uh, with intervening warm periods about 15,000 years. And if you, if you look closely, you find that uh, temperatures rise about 600 years earlier than the atmospheric CO2 in all of these cases. Mr. Gore was trying to say the CO2 is driving it, but, but the data really indicates that temperatures are probably the driver. They warm the oceans, the oceans uh, and, and the biosphere emit more carbon dioxide. And then you can go back even farther and there's, there's very little correlation between carbon dioxide and temperature if, if you look into the geologic record. But let, let's talk about the greenhouse effect for a moment. So. The greenhouse effect is a theoretical basis for the idea that humans are causing dangerous warming. Uh, uh, light enters our atmosphere from the sun, and what isn't reflected is absorbed by the surface of the Earth. And then the Earth, being a, a warm body, gives off lower energy infrared radiation. Uh, and that goes back on to, out into space to keep the planet in a temperature equilibrium. But most of that uh, uh, infrared is captured by greenhouse gases in our atmosphere. Most of it uh, causes those gases to have their molecules vibrate and, uh, and then they re-radiate that energy and that does tend to warm the surface of the earth. Some of that comes back down again. 
Um, and so uh, the uh, proponents of the theory of man-made warming say that our industry is putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which is a greenhouse gas, and that is uh, capturing more outgoing infrared radiation and warming the planet. The thing is that, that misses quite a bit. And often I ask audiences, uh, what is nature's dominant greenhouse gas? And they'll say carbon dioxide or they'll say methane. But the answer is water vapor. Scientists, and this really isn't in dispute, scientists estimate, estimate that somewhere between 75 or maybe 70 and, and 90% of Earth's greenhouse effect is caused by water vapor and clouds. It is a natural effect. And uh, so if you look at carbon dioxide, uh, only four of every 10,000 molecules in the atmosphere are carbon, are carbon dioxide, a very, very small percent. And the amount that our industry could have put in, into uh, the atmosphere in all of our history is only a fraction of one of those four molecules. And so the next thing you can do is you can break down the greenhouse effect and you can say, okay, we said, let's be conservative about 75% of Earth's, Earth's greenhouse effect, and again, remember, this is what's blamed on dangerous global warming. About 75% is due to water vapor and clouds. Uh, about a quarter of it is then due to carbon dioxide, methane, and other gases. But then you need to say, well, how much of that last quarter is due to our industries versus nature? Because the oceans have 50 times as much carbon dioxide dissolved as is in the atmosphere. And the oceans are always releasing carbon dioxide and absorbing it. When plants die, they, they emit carbon dioxide. And when they grow, they absorb it from the atmosphere. And then we have volcanoes, um, both above the surface of, of the ocean and about 10 times as many under the surface of the ocean that are putting gases in the environment all the time, including carbon dioxide. And so when you roll this all together, you find out that nature puts 20 times as much carbon dioxide into the atmosphere every day as all of our industries and removes about the same amount. It's really dominated by nature. And so uh, humans are responsible for only about one or two parts per hundred of Earth's greenhouse effect. Very, very small. And that means if we eliminate, if we eliminate all emissions, we may not be able to even measure the difference in global temperatures. And so those are the numbers that you never hear, uh, that water vapor is the dominant gas, that uh, nature puts much more CO2 in the atmosphere. Nevertheless, we have every community trying to be net zero and, and uh, 27 uh, conferences of the parties now they meet every year and uh, 34,000 people this year. <laughs> very, 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 very crazy. The other thing that we don't hear is, uh, well, we often hear it's drummed into our head that CO2 is a pollutant when in fact it's a nutrient. I mean, it's without it, life would not be possible <laughs> on this planet. But I, you know, uh, Dr. Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace is yeah. often saying that, um, you know, greenhouse farmers will pump 1200 parts per million of CO2. Uh, that's optimal. It seems to be optimal for, for plant growth. Absolutely. And yet we have, what, 450 <laughs> parts per million? He's, he says that we're actually on a CO2 starvation diet. What are your thoughts? Yes, we are very low. Uh, Dr. Will Happer of, of Princeton has said similar things. We're in a little bit of a carbon dioxide drought. Yeah, when I present to groups, I like to ask a, what I call a zany question. I say, what do uh, cannabis growers know that climate scientists don't apparently know? 
And the answer is that carbon dioxide is plant food. It makes plants grow. And as you say, uh, every every uh, marijuana grower with his or her, her salt is pumping carbon dioxide into the greenhouse. And I show a few images of these tanks people are using to get their, their crop to grow bigger and faster. And uh, nevertheless, carbon dioxide is called a pollutant. We, in, we inhale only a trace of CO2 as we've, I've talked about, but as we burn sugars in our body, as we do continuously, we generate carbon dioxide. So every time each one of us exhales, we exhale a hundred times the concentration of the CO2 in the atmosphere. And so CO2 is great for plants. Uh, with higher levels of carbon dioxide, plants get bigger fruits, they get bigger vegetables, they get thicker tree trunks, they get bigger root systems, they're more resistant to drought. Literally, if there's one compound we can put in the biosphere that is absolutely great for the biosphere, carbon dioxide is that compound. Yet today we have every company and every university counting their carbon dioxide footprint. Very, very foolish. <laughs> so, so you're right on that. We shouldn't be calling it a pollutant. Um, so in this mad rush uh, to reduce CO2, yeah, um, is this... Is this likely to affect crop yields? I mean, are we in fact perhaps causing um, causing famine and drought by taking CO two out of the atmosphere when in fact we should be putting more into the uh, the atmosphere? Well, there's really no evidence that that famine is getting worse. For example, uh, another chart I like to use shows that uh, shows the history of famine. Now we have. Globally, maybe 100,000 people die each year. Uh, I'm sorry, not each year. It's probably more like a decade. But back in the 1920s, we had 10 million people dying from famine uh, every decade. And so the, the effects of famine are way, way down. The effects of, of deaths from disaster are down. There's an international organization whose name escapes me, but they plot deaths from disaster, um, earthquakes, um, hurricanes, storms, droughts, floods, and those are way, way down as well. Uh, maybe a fa uh, 98% down from, from early in the century. And, and if you, you can also go to every country in the world and look at agricultural output, and more than 90% of them show a steady up, uh, uptick in output, steady growth. Uh, nevertheless, we have the United Nations, we have many other people saying, well, this, this global warming is going to cause crop failures and we won't have enough food. But there's no evidence, again, of that. Uh, you can go nation by nation and see that, that everybody is growing more because of the tremendous gains in agriculture. And oh, by the way, CO2 helps, uh, helps plants as well. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it's another, another chunk of evidence that is just flat out wrong, regardless of what you hear in the press. Let's talk about hydro hydrocarbons, uh, fossil yeah. fuels, which uh, are supposedly responsible, you know, for the uh, uh, uptick in temperatures and so forth. Uh, and the idea that, I mean, so much of this earth is inhospitable uh, for like six months of the year. Uh, I mean, where would we be without, you know, burning natural gas and oil and even coal, uh, not only to, um, you know, for the power grid, but also to heat our homes. I mean, Aren't more, shouldn't we be more concerned about people freezing than, you know, an increase in, in the temperature? Well, what I call the hydrocarbon revolution has shaped modern society. Hydrocarbons are, are those materials that have carbons and hydrogen 
primarily they are oil, petroleum, natural gas, but we also include coal in there. But back about the 17, 1800s, when we were having the industrial revolution, we also had a, a hydrocarbon revolution. And we started using coal uh, to be able to, to uh, power machinery and mine things. And we started, uh, we had a transportation revolution as part of the hydrocarbon revolution. Um, uh, uh, internal combustion engine cars and uh, refining of gasoline and, and uh, diesel fuel from oil. And then we had electricity, the biggest one of all. Uh, when Thomas Edison did his uh, first uh, New York City power plant, uh, he didn't burn wood because wood was very poor in terms of energy output. He burned coal and all of our trains ran on coal. And so if, if, you, if you plot modern uh, uh, GNP growth, a curve of that, and you plot uh, hydrocarbon use or, or you plot emissions, let's say that represent hydrocarbons, you see almost a, a, you see a very high correlation. Uh, modern society is based on hydrocarbon fuels. We still have uh, 91% of all transportation is powered by oil. Another 4% is powered by natural gas. I think 1% is, is powered by biofuels. Um, oh, I'm sorry, 3% by biofuels and 1% electric. So we're dominated there. 99% of all airline transportation comes from, from biofuels. And if you even look, uh, another one of my favorite charts is to, is to talk about um, uh, energy usage uh, over the last 20 or 30 years. The, the share of coal, oil, and gas is still about 82% that powers a global society. That's the same it was back in uh, 1989. And so despite the fact that we're sp we've spent uh, almost $5 trillion now on renewables, wind and solar, uh, they still cannot replace um, the, uh, the uh, hydrocarbon use. I've got another graph I call the, the, uh, the energy mountain graph, which is a black graph going up, which shows global energy consumption, which has tripled since 1965. And global energy consumption has actually accelerated since the year 2000. And then I plot wind and solar way down at the bottom. We, we've never had a year when the growth in renewables has been able to account for the growth in world energy. And so uh, they can't even account for the growth, let alone replace our traditional hydrocarbon fuels. And so as a result, as you say, Mr. Gore and others are, are ringing the alarms. You know, we've got to do all these things because we're just not getting there in their uh, opinion. Steve, we'll take a quick time out, come back and uh, continue to discuss about uh, sustainable energy and climate change. Back with more in a moment. Truth will set you free, free, free. But first, it will really tick you off. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. And we're back with Steve Gorham, Executive Director of the Climate Science Coalition of America and the author of Outside the Green Box, Rethinking Sustainable Development. We're talking about, you know, the, all of the benefits uh, uh, from fossil fuels or hydrocarbons and the, the prosperity that has been created as a result. Much of that, though, has been denied to the developing world. Uh, for example, recently, I think President Biden 
offered, I think it was something like $8 billion to South Africa to shut down one of their, I believe it was a nuclear plant. Um, and and I have, a, I have a, a niece that lives in, in Cape Town. And every week, or every day actually, there's a, an allotted period of time where there's no electricity. These aren't yeah. blackouts, it's a daily routine now. Uh, I mean, this is, gonna, this is going to set back Africa and, and the developing world decades. Yeah. It is constraining it. There are about 600 people without access to electricity, and there are about 2 billion that have very poor access, that have, have blackouts for long periods in every day. And those are in, in India, in Africa, Southeast Asia. And as you say, we have many organizations now that are not wanting to lend on coal. By the way, coal is still the biggest source of electricity worldwide, and it's actually doing record this year. Uh, Germany re just restarted 28 coal plants because because of the energy crisis over there. We can we can get into that, but but yeah, the World Bank um, and many other groups and financial groups are saying we won't lend uh, to coal projects. We won't lend to natural gas projects in many cases. Uh, China is one of those that is lending to those projects across the world, but. Um, it's very, very tough. And wind and solar just can't do it. There, there's a fundamental difference. Wind and solar are intermittent. And if you're trying to run a factory and you have to have continuous processes, you can't have the electricity goes out. It ruins your lines. It ruins your materials. It ruins your chemicals, whatever. Uh, so so um, we really have to have always on a reliable energy sources. Um, that's coal. Uh, that's natural gas. Um, uh, it's, that can be hydro, uh, but it isn't wind and solar. And nevertheless, the wealthy nations are trying to push the, those ideas on the developing nations, as you say. Let's talk about the, the, um, the green, the transition to green technology. Let's talk with, about electric vehicles, for example. Right. I, I, the, the argument that they are ethical and sustainable uh, just kind of disabuses of that notion, if you could. Well, uh, the push for electric vehicles is uh, when they drive, they don't emit anything, basically. They don't, they don't emit carbon dioxide. If you drive your, the great news about internal combustion engine cars in the wealthy nations like the United States and Europe is we have almost no emissions anymore. Uh, the volatile organic compounds are down 98% from 1980. They're very, very clean. The only thing that comes out of your your uh, car engine, your internal combustion engine car, uh, uh, is uh, water vapor and carbon dioxide. That's basically the only thing that comes out of your tailpipe. But because carbon dioxide is demonized, they're saying, well, we have to force everyone to use electric vehicles. And there are many, many problems with electric vehicles. Um, first, they are, they're heavier than, than regular cars. Uh, and that is because of the size of the battery. If if you take a if you take a Honda Civic for example, uh, it's got a 12.4 gallon gas tank. It can go 366 miles on 77 and a half pounds of fuel that you put on in that gas tank. So if you say, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna do an electric vehicle like a Chevy Volt, and I'm gonna put in a 77 and a half pound battery, you can only go 21 miles. <laughs> you can't go 360 miles. So you have to scale up that battery by a factory of a factor of 17. And so as a result, electric vehicles are gonna be about 50% heavier than regular uh, gasoline or diesel cars. And uh, so 
Uh, we're going to have uh, more uh, deaths and injuries from uh, from collisions. Another big issue is what happens in cold weather. <laughs> well, we just we found out this this year and last year that if you have an EV and it gets down to about 10 degrees Fahrenheit, it literally will not charge. And it gets about the about half the mileage. And Canada, I noticed, <laughs> in December said they're going to go to a zero emissions mandate by 2035. And so they want everybody to get an electric vehicle. We're well, not going to be able to drive these in the winter. Good luck so in how, Winnipeg. Yeah. How the heck can you have an electric vehicle? You just flat out cannot drive the vehicle unless you have you're going to have a heated garage that you can put it in. It's not going to charge. And even and once you get outside the heated garage, you don't get any mileage. You get about half the miles. Now, um, a gasoline or a diesel car also has waste heat. And so you heat your vehicle with the waste heat in cold weather, but an EV doesn't have the waste heat. So you have to, have, you have to spend uh, part of your battery power to heat your vehicle. These things just are not going to work in the winter. So... Canada and, and other cities like Chicago, which I live in sometimes, need to get their heads screwed on straight and get rid of these, these uh, mandates. Well, what about the, the, um, the carbon footprint to manufacture an EV vehicle versus, versus an internal combustion engine? Um, I, I've, I've read something about how you would have to drive an, uh, an EV about 100,000 kilometers before you actually start to reap any CO2 savings, I guess. I think that's, I think that's about right. The uh, International Energy Agency says it takes about, um, uh, you end up with about half of the emissions of carbon dioxide from an EV if you consider all things, but you're right, it takes, it takes quite a while uh, before you break even when you have to drive. Let's consider some other things though. Uh, charging, uh, public charging is really a big problem. Um, and I've spoken to a number of groups that that uh, 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 gasoline and convenience stores own, store owners, and they're not real too, really too interested in putting in these, uh, these charging stations. So here's the comparison. If you put in a gasoline pump, it costs about $20,000. If you put in a high-speed um, uh, EV charger, it costs about $100,000, five times as much. Now, in a gasoline pump, uh, worst case, somebody can fill up in six minutes. Usually, it's less than that. And in a 12-hour in a day, uh, that's about 120 customers. EV takes 30 minutes to do the charge. So you can serve about uh, 20 or 25 customers. So not only does it cost five times the capital investment, but you can serve one-fifth of the customers. Uh, the other thing is a lot of these uh, charging stations are off in a parking lot or something. And, you know, my wife doesn't want to go there, sit in the dark, wait 30 minutes in an unattended parking lot. There are safety issues. Um, so what's going to happen with these chargers is, I predict, if these take off, we're going to have government paying utilities, subsidizing utilities to do this. And it's going to come out of everybody's electric rate because the business case is not there. Uh, nobody's making money on these chargers. Let me give you another example here. Um, Electrify America put out a report in October. They're the second largest charging company in the U.S. behind Tesla. They're pretty far behind. They have 3,500 charging stations. They put out a press release in October saying in 2021, they had 1.45 million customer charging sessions. 
Well, that sounds like a lot, but if you drive that by, the, you divide their number of charging stations and 365 days in a year, you find they're only getting a little over one charging session per charger per day. <laughs> well, of course that's gonna improve, but nobody can run a business like that. This thing costs $100,000. Uh, so again, it's going to be, it's all these companies, I wouldn't invest in any of these charging companies. If this comes to pass, I think it's gonna be utilities, and it's going to come out of ratepayers' bills to fund these things and out of government subsidies. It just doesn't make business sense. All right, we'll take another time out. Steve Gorham stays with us. Welcome back. Welcome back to Richard Serrett's Strange Planet. Steve Gorham stays with us, executive director of the Climate Science Coalition of America, author of, well, the latest is Outside the Green Box, Rethinking Sustainable Development. We were talking about electric vehicles. Uh, what about the, the um, in terms of the extraction of raw materials? Is there enough, is there even enough uh, cobalt or lithium on the, on, in the, on the planet to replace, let's say, the entire fleet of all vehicles, I don't know, in the United Kingdom, for example? Right, probably not. That is a big issue. We have a, currently a pretty big cost gap between diesel and gasoline cars and electric vehicles. An example, again, a 2022 Toyota Corolla, about $20,000 MSRP, 2022 Chevy Bolt, $31,000, about a 54% premium. Now, the problem with these is uh, they, the uh, battery prices have come down for many years, but in the last year and a half, they've gone way up, up by about 60%. And a big, a big reason is um, metals. Uh, to, uh, to get enough metals for 1,000 pound battery, uh, you need to move about 500,000 pounds of, of uh, rock. And so it's, it's a big, big deal. And uh, so we have many, many people saying that we're gonna get to 50% uh, EVs or, or more by uh, 2040. I have a much lower projection. And the reason is, that I think uh, the, the cost of these metals is going to remain very high. Uh, lithium, copper, they're talking about copper shortages over the next 10 years. Uh, cobalt, nickel, as you say, those are the big ones. Uh, those prices are going to stay high. It takes a long time to set up a mine. Again, the International Energy Agency says uh, the typical copper mine takes 16 and a half years from first concept to actually getting metal out of it. And yet we're talking about increasing lithium by a factor of 10, increasing global copper output by a factor of, of 50%, just to handle electric vehicles. I think cobalt is like three times and nickel is, is three or four times. So these are very, very big numbers. Uh, they also come from places where, you know, it's not, it's not the best thing. The, um, uh, most of this, for example, cobalt comes from, uh, uh, the Bel the Republic of Congo, I believe, and, and there's, there is uh, forced labor, there's child labor there. Uh, the uh, the uh, value chain and the, the mining chain on these is not something to be proud of typically, but we have all these people pushing us toward EVs. <laughs> it's sure gonna be interesting, but I think uh, we're gonna run into some big, some big issues. Well, another issue, uh, there was a Norwegian shipping line that just the other day announced that they're not going to allow electric vehicles or even hybrids on their on their ferries because yeah. one of them caught fire, they couldn't extinguish it, the whole ship went down. 
So I'm yeah. imagining that in the future, these shipping companies won't be able to get insurance. They won't be able to export electric vehicles from overseas to come into the North American market and vice versa. Uh, I don't think they saw that one coming. Well, you're right. And there was a there was a big cargo ship in the Atlantic that went down too that was full of EVs and, and had a big fire and it went down. And Norway is interesting because they have like a, a 70% EV penetration on annual sales. So it's a big EV country. But yeah, the, the problem with these batteries is they can combust. Uh, General Motors recalled 140,000 volts uh, because the batteries would spontaneously combust. They'd be just sitting out uh, sitting in somebody's garage or sitting out on, on the, uh, the driveway and they just start, they catch on fire. Uh, back when we had the hurricane, I can't remember which one come through Florida this fall, uh, all that flooding, they were having EV fires afterwards because these batteries would get wet and they would have a little bit of a defect then and then they would spontaneously uh, burst into flames. So I had these big fields with cars that were widely separated so they wouldn't burn each other up. Watch for this to happen in California without the flooding. California is the big EV state. We're going to have a whole bunch of uh, battery car fires there. And another thing to be aware of, you know, uh, Vice President Kamala Harris has talked about uh, how she loves electric buses. I, I, I really have a lot of fear for that. I've advised my family to try and avoid them. But wait till we get one of these. I have pictures of uh, buses that have combusted in China and in Europe. And they just they just spontaneously go up. They've got a picture of these things. I, I sure hope that doesn't happen with 20 or 25 kids on board. But, uh, you know, we, we march off in these directions and don't consider the consequences. But you're right. Uh, uh, issues with with EV combustion is a big deal as well. So what's behind all of this? Um, I mean, surely the uh, the ruling class, they realize that, you know, there's there's no scientific basis for this. There's no business argument for this. What is this all about? Is it just a, a huge transfer of wealth? What's going on here? No, I do think I do think the uh, the people that are demanding this, Al Gore and others, really believe that climate change is a problem that we're hurting the planet. We have to fix it. But it has become the you know the number one reason for everything. If you look at utilities now, uh, they're under so much pressure from the states, uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, utilities. They are, uh, it used to be reliability and cost to the ratepayer. Those have been submerged behind uh, reduction in emissions. And so we have, they're buying wind and solar everywhere. And the reliability of the grid is, is declining in the United States. It's, it's gotten about, uh, 50, about 100% worse than it was. It's not a big number yet, uh, six or seven years ago, but it's, it's going to go that way. Uh, we had, uh, just to take a tangent, the, uh, the Northeast ISO, the uh, uh, Northeast region of the six states, Maine and Massachusetts, Vermont, uh, Connecticut, et cetera, did a study because all of those states are pushing them to go 90% renewables. And they figure out that if they had a 300% overcapacity, in other words, you take the normal electricity usage and you increase it by a factor of three, <laughs> Uh, with all this wind and solar, they would still have, um, and they put in a lot of batteries as well, they would still have, I think it was um, 25 days a year when they were going to have rolling blackouts and another possible 15 days when, when it was at high risk. So you put in these, and by the way, when, when, when you have these, these blackouts, people die. Uh, in Texas, we had uh, more than 200 people die with the blackouts in uh in 2021, 
And a lot of that was because they, they undercalled the demand and we had a lot of renewables on the grid. But we're headed that way. We're, uh, Canada actually is, is fairly well blessed. You have 60% of your electricity from hydropower, 15% from nuclear. So if any country can get close to net zero, Canada can. Uh, Brazil probably can, Norway can, but it's not going to happen in most places in the world. Uh, we're just going to have to swing back towards hydrocarbons. Yeah, and even if we did reach net zero, what difference would it make? I mean, Canada, in terms of, uh, you know, our contribution to CO2, it seems like they're intent on taking us back to the dark ages. Um, well, they ought to have a group up there, Canadians for Global Warming, right? I, I think we need one in Chicago, too. I just like the warm weather. I mean, the idea that, that warm weather is bad for you. Here's another one, too. The idea that warm weather is bad for you is crazy. We had like... Uh, a hundred medical uh, uh, groups two or three years ago that came out that said that uh, climate change was a health issue for for people in the United States. But you start to look at the data and you go, okay, when do people get sick? Well, more people had COVID in all the winter months. Uh, you go to every country in the world. I haven't been to all of them, but they get COVID in the winter months. Our flu season is during the winter months when it's colder. People don't get flu in the summer. And if you look at the data, more people die every winter in every country in either the northern or, or southern hemisphere than in the summer. Warm weather is good for people. And then the other thing is, why do people retire to Florida and Texas and Arizona? Don't they know that warm climates are dangerous? How foolish are they? We should all be moving to Canada, right? <laughs> I mean, it's just it, it's just beyond common sense. Well, despite this, uh, I mean, the world doesn't seem to be transitioning to green. It's transitioning back to fossil fuel. You mentioned uh, Germany, the UK now buying coal. Uh, Germany and Japan came looking for our liquid natural gas, but unfortunately our prime minister right. couldn't, couldn't see the business argument for uh, about a, a deal that would have probably been about a third of a trillion dollars in our coffers. We could sure use that. Um, but yeah, we should talk about the world energy crisis a little bit. Yes, let's do that. Uh, which, which is the Europe-centered crisis. So um, we've had, uh, uh, well, let me just find what I'm looking for here data-wise. So there have been a lot of headlines about a world energy crisis over the last year or so. And most of those say that our problem is due to um, COVID disruption, supply chain, and then Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But there are bigger factors. One is an underinvestment in oil and gas, and, and then also the green energy policies. If you look at investment in um, exploration and drilling for oil and gas, uh, that rose from 2010, about $500 billion a year, up to almost $800 billion a year in 2014. But then it's been declining for the last seven or eight years. And we have uh, people going around saying, like, like uh, Fatih Birol, um, executive director of the International Energy Agency, says, if governments are serious about the climate crisis, there can be no new investments in oil, gas, and coal. And so investment has been falling off. It's down to below, uh, just a little above 300 billion in 2020, down quite a bit from where it was. And so when we recovered from COVID, uh, we had a rise in world oil prices. They were down about $20 a barrel, and uh, three months before the invasion of Ukraine, they had gone up to $80 a barrel. And then in, in Europe, what Europe has done is they, they have become uh, very dependent on wind, solar, uh, intermittent sources, and natural gas. 
Uh, Europe closed 100 nuclear plants in the last decade, 34 in England and 30 in Germany, and 23 nations signed pledges saying we weren't going to use coal anymore. And, and so uh, they got very dependent on intermittents, wind and solar and natural gas. Uh, for example, Netherlands was 78% wind, solar, and gas. Uh, UK, 64% uh, wind, solar, and gas. Uh, and, and another big thing is almost all that gas is imported. The European community did a study in 2017 that said there were more than 40 European shale fields that had oil and gas. There's a big one called the Finniscandian Shield from the Baltics, on the east, all the way over to England, covers all of Northern Europe. Well, they haven't fractured any of those. They decided they're gonna import all of it. And by the way, a big chunk of that was from Russia. And so what happens, then what happened in 2021 is the wind didn't blow throughout much of the year. Uh, the, the electricity output from wind in France, Germany, and the UK was down about 20 to 30% for the year. So what they did was they burned natural gas. They didn't have any other choice. And by the end of 2021, uh, gas prices were way up. They had a shortage. Gas prices were typically about uh, 13 to 18 euros per megawatt hour is how they measure it. That was back in early 2021. It had gone up to 80 euros per megawatt hour, up by a factor of seven. This was by December of 2021, three months before the invasion of Ukraine. And so this crisis was well underway. Then we had the Ukraine thing, and then they, they jumped much higher. Electricity, similarly, had gone up by a factor of six by December of 2021. Uh, now it's still up seven or eight times. Imagine paying uh, $1,000 a month for your energy bill if you have a house. I mean, it's just, and so they're shutting down industries out there. They are, uh, restaurants in, in Brussels aren't, aren't cooking anything anymore. They're not even put out, everything, everybody's eating a, a salad. The Hungarian schools um, are putting wood stoves in, into, they put wood stoves in their schools because they didn't think they'd have gas. In England, they're saying a shower with a friend <laughs> or, or don't shower at all. I mean, it really is a drop in standard of living. Yet we still have the leaders in Europe saying, what we need is more wind and solar. If we get more wind and solar, you know, you can't turn up the wind and solar. It just doesn't, doesn't work that way. As this final question, Steve, is this energy crisis? I mean, you have people and thank God the winter isn't quite as severe in, in Europe uh, as they were thinking and, and right. it could have been a catastrophe, but you still, you have people going into the black forest and collecting wood to burn in their yep. hands. Uh, is this going to be the wake-up call? Are, are the, the people going to rise up and, and basically, you know, tell their leaders enough of this madness? Are we going to wake up from this, as you call it, the mad, mad, mad world of climatism? Well, I think so. I think I think net zero is going to become a hated term. I think people are eventually going to say, look, you're ruining our uh, electrical system. They're already doing it in Europe. Northeast U.S. is on track for that as well. Australia has some big issues. Um, they, they don't have uh, uh, much hydropower there. They have no nuclear. They wanna go all wind and solar. So we're gonna see a big, a big uh, pullback, but it's gonna take decades, I really think. The world is marching down this road. It's gonna take a long, long time till they come back to their senses. Steve, a great pleasure. I hope we can do this again. Outside the green box, rethinking sustainable, sustainable uh, development and uh, the website, uh, just go into the uh, the notes for this episode, but it's stevegoram.com. Great to meet you and uh, speak with you. Thank you, Richard. 
A new Richard Serrett's Strange Planet drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday.